0: Here we go again, Hireside Chatters, doing the thing from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And all I don't want for Christmas is another lockdown or a risky shot. But in the name of Omicron, it seems like that is what the COVID-obsessed system is determined to give us. And as we come up on almost two years of all this, we're still accepting the same failed approaches and listening to the same ineffective figureheads tell us that we should still just trust the experts and follow the science. But what if the experts are corrupt, and the science is biased? Because the reality is that we're experiencing a full-court press of propaganda, censorship, media manipulation, data dishonesty, freedom erosion, and now holding people hostage if they won't bow down at the altar of the CDC and take the sacrament of the shot. How many rounds of boosters and breakthroughs is it gonna take before the Fauci faithful lose confidence in their god? Well, it's hard to say, but Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s new book certainly seems like a big contribution to speeding things along. It's called The Real Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Big Pharma, and the Global War on Democracy and Public Health, and nothing gives me more hope than knowing it's already number one on Amazon and a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today national bestseller. Because having just read it, it presents an ironclad case with over 500 pages and 2,200 well-sourced footnotes, that Anthony Fauci is far from the hero he's presented as, and lays out not only his rise to power, his intentional mismanagement of the AIDS crisis for profit, and his other crimes against humanity, but also the structural corruption of the medical-industrial complex that the House of COVID was built on. Of course, Mr. Kennedy has been fighting the good fight for many years as an environmental lawyer and activist, helping to found the nonprofit environmental group Waterkeeper Alliance in 1999, Working as the senior attorney for the National Resource Defense Council for over 30 years, and eventually finding his way to the vaccine issue as the founder and chairman of Children's Health Defense, an organization we've certainly championed around here for quite some time. So let's get into it. The political dynasty descendant using his power for good, the COVID spell breaker and children's health defender, Bobby Kennedy Jr., welcome to the higher side. Thanks for having me, Greg. Yes, it is a real pleasure. Big thanks to your son, Bobby Three, for helping us get connected. Unlike Michael Cohen, I do read the books of my guests. And this one is the silver bullet we needed for truly breaking through this onslaught of propaganda and corruption. I feel like I can hand it to even the most diehard believers, and they would have a hard time arguing against its contents. And I know we only have an hour, and there's a lot to try to touch on here. So let's dive into it. I tend to like to start with the history... And in terms of Fauci's rise to power and his influence in the system, there's a lot people should know. In fact, in 1980, it was even recommended we abolish the CDC and NIAID because they weren't needed anymore. I'm sure that's a surprise to some people. But take us back to around that time in the 80s where a lot of this
1: story seems to start. Well, Tony Fauci really got his start. Uh, You know, he he came into the agency at 68, running the lab. This is the National Institute for Allergic and Infectious Diseases. He became head of the agency in the very early 80s. And at that time, NIAID was a backwater with a tiny budget and was on the chopping block by the Reagan administration, as you point out, along with CDC, because infectious diseases... the, the, The precipitous decline in mortalities from infectious diseases had made those agencies practically irrelevant. And Fauci's great triumph was winning control of the AIDS crisis and this huge budget that came along with it from his sister agency, the National Cancer Institute. AIDS had originally landed at NCI because the the first, the primary signal for AIDS was Kaposi's sarcoma, which is a cancer that appeared suddenly in a lot of gay men along with this immune system spiral. And so it originally, the, the disease and the research had initially Landed at the National Cancer Institute, but in 1983, two scientists, Luc Montagnier, who won the Nobel Prize, and Robert Gallo at NIH, posited that they had found HIV viruses in about half the men who were affected. And they said, maybe this is one of the causes of AIDS. Tony Fauci used that as leverage to say, this is an infectious disease, it's not a cancer, and therefore it should come to my institute, which is the the NIAID. He won control of it in this bureaucratic battle, but he didn't know what to do with it, because NCI, the National Cancer Institute, was an old hand at developing drugs. It had laboratories set up develop cancer drugs but NIAID didn't have any of that expertise so he had to rely on the pharmaceutical companies to develop drugs for him and at that point the only drug available the number one drug in the pipeline was a chemotherapy drug that had been found that was developed by the U.S. government and then trash canned because it was regarded as too toxic for chemotherapy. And remember, chemotherapy only lasts typically about two weeks. It kills every cell in the human body, but the hope is that it will kill the tumor cells before it kills the rest of you. But they have to stop giving it to you very, very quickly. Ouchie's plan was to take that drug, which was too toxic for chemotherapy. And give it to people for their whole lives. And of course, the end point was that it killed everybody who took it. And it ended up killing probably around 330,000 gay men, more people than AIDS at that time. And Tony felt she got approval that the drug was a drug. It had gone, Blackson Smith Klein had gotten a hold of it. And Glaxo, it became the most expensive drug in history. It cost ten thousand dollars for a one-year treatment. But there was a fight to get a hold of it because Tony Fauci told the world that it cured AIDS, that it you know, that it treated AIDS and it prevented people from dying, which was not true. As it turns out, he had fixed the studies. The studies were supposed to last for two years, but he suspended them after eight weeks because they were killing everybody who was taking AZT. The only way that he succeeded in preserving the illusion that this was a useful drug was to give the people in the AZT group extensive blood transfusions to keep them alive for eight weeks. And even with the blood transfusions, they were all dropping dead. So he had to call an end to the study after eight weeks. And he did his trick, which is used again and again and again, which is to declare to the world this drug has been proven in the clinical trials so useful that we are going to end the clinical trials. We're going to unblind them. We're going to give AZT to the placebo group. And we are going to start giving this drug to people who aren't even sick from AIDS, but who just have HIV detected in their blood through a PCR test that has a lot of false positives. And that was really the beginning of this huge die-off of AIDS uh, victims during the mid-1980s to the early 1990s when they started cutting the dose.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, that's really great context for people to know. And so the government is having this conversation about maybe we abolish these agencies. They're not needed. And then just a year or two later, we have the AIDS crisis. It seems like very convenient timing, of course, followed by swine flus and bird flus and all the rest of it.
1: Yeah. Within the agency at that time, there were memos going back and forth It said we need to find a pandemic to justify our existence because David Stockman who was Reagan's budget director, was literally talking about abolishing these agencies altogether because infectious diseases were no longer a significant cause of death among Americans. The reason that the deaths from infectious diseases had declined had nothing to do with vaccines, according to the CDC. The CDC did a study in two thousand. It showed this precipitous drop in mortality in infectious diseases, which is one of the most consequential developments in human health his in the history of mankind. Mm-hmm. The you know all these diseases like peripheral fever and cholera and typhoid and typhus and polio etc that had killed so many, and measles, and chickenpox that had killed so many people in the early 1900s that simply stopped killing people by the mid-1950s. And CDC did a study on what was the cause of that decline in, in the year 2000 with Johns Hopkins, and they found that it had virtually nothing to do with vaccines, and it had everything to do with nutrition and sanitation and hygiene, Chlorinated water, electric refrigerators, and good road systems for transporting food. Mm-hmm. And but the the agency, beginning around 1976, began inventing pandemics. They invented a swine flu pandemic in '76. AIDS came along in you know '83, and then they invented a A bird flu pandemic in 2009, a swine flu pandemic, and many of these, like the bird flu pandemic in 2005, killed one person, and yet they called it a pandemic. And they sold, you know, billions and billions of dollars worth of vaccines. And the same thing happened with Zyka. Zyka was an invented pandemic. It never caused microcephaly, and yet... Tony Fauci, by promoting it as this frightening pandemic that was going to shrink all of our babies' heads, was able to get $2.2 billion from Congress to develop a vaccine and then Zika just disappeared. Mm -hmm. And so that again and again has been what I show in the book is that that uh, the agency, the, this this cadre within the agency, and also other people, people within Welcome Trust, which is the UK version of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and and Bill Melinda Gates, have also conspired with the WHO to create these periodic pandemics in order to sell vaccines and to increase the power and reach of the pharmaceutical industry.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. And in terms of the medical infrastructure that Fauci helped set up, it really seems like a medical mafia when you understand the patents and the royalties and the university's dependence on this flow of funds and how he just keeps control and manages to keep everything quiet. Talk to us about that infrastructure a bit.
1: Well, first of all, you know, you have agency capture phenomena in every agency. And during my career as an environmental lawyer, I brought over five hundred lawsuits, and probably around a hundred of those were not against polluters, but against the environmental agencies like EPA and the various state agencies. Because through a well documented dynamic, the agencies gradually become sock puppets for the industries that they're supposed to regulate. And that has happened with public health agencies, but with public health agencies in the United States, the capture phenomena is on steroids because of this web of financial entanglements between the pharmaceutical industry and the public health agencies that doesn't exist anywhere else with any of the other agencies. For example, the FDA gets about forty five percent of its budget from pharmaceutical companies. That, the analogy would be if EPA got half of its budget or close to half of its budget from coal companies, it would put them completely under the control of the coal industry. That the, the, the CDC Ends about 40% of its budget, $4.9 billion out of its $12 billion budget, buying vaccines from the four big vaccine companies and then marking them and distributing them to the American people. So it is a vaccine company. And if you work for CDC, you do not get career advancement by reporting problems with vaccines you get career advancement by increasing vaccine uptake. That is the metric for success in that agency every year. The metric for success is not public health. Is the health of Americans actually better this year than it was last year? Those questions are never answered. And we've seen a steady decline in American health, particularly since Tony Fauci took the helm in 1984. When he came in in 68, the chronic disease rate among Americans was 6%. By 1986, or 1988, the chronic disease rate had raised to 12.8%. By 2006, the chronic disease rate among Americans was 54%. And by chronic disease, I mean ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, ticks. Allergic diseases like peanut allergies and food allergies—many of these just suddenly appeared—and an epidemic beginning around 1989. And and the autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile diabetes, lupus, uh, Graves' disease, Crohn's disease, GBS, many many others suddenly exploded. Now Tony Fauci's job at NIAID is to do scientific studies, to use his $6.1 billion budget, the civilian budget, to do scientific studies to determine the etiology of these diseases. In other words, to find out what the environmental cause is. What is the exposure? We know it has to be an environmental exposure because genes do not cause epidemics. So you have to figure out an environmental exposure that is ubiquitous that began in 1989 and that can cause, using bench studies, animal studies, you can determine whether it can cause these diseases. And using retrospective studies, studying their databases, you can you can make those determinations. But Tony Fauci not only never does those studies, but he also uses his extraordinary financial power to pro- to prevent other people from doing it. Scientists who actually try to do those studies have their careers ruined. And instead, he has turned his budget over to a completely different and unprecedented purpose, which is creating pharmaceutical products in partnership with the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, Tony Fauci's agency no longer does this kind of basic research. Instead, it spends practically its entire budget developing new drugs for the for the pharmaceutical companies. Right. And I'll give you an example about how successful and pervasive this influence has become. Between about 2009 and 2016, there were about 240 drugs that were approved by FDA, all of which came from Tony Fauci's shop. With many of those drugs, Fauci and his minions, his top deputies, own patent rights, margin rights for those drugs that allow them, under these very perverse federal rules, to collect. $150,000 a year per product for life. His agency also owns patents. For example, his agency owns half the patent for the Moderna vaccine, and it stands to make billions and billions of dollars on sales from those vaccines. So they're not, the regulatory function at his agency has been subsumed by the commercial and mercantile functions. And he's ignoring his job for 50 years, which is to find out, to to derail the, you know, this increasingly epidemic, this expensive debilitating epidemic of chronic disease, finding out what it is and ending the exposures. Instead, he's just developing drugs to treat those diseases, which has created huge profits for big pharma.
0: Great points. And it's also very convenient for the other industries creating the toxic bullshit that he's not looking into that. And so there are many parallels between the story of AIDS and COVID with Anthony Fauci being front and center in both situations, including exploding cases with PCR tests. I wanted to read this quote where you write, instead of using traditional methods of diagnosing disease based on symptoms... Dr. Fauci encouraged doctors to perform blood tests on both healthy and unhealthy individuals to diagnose AIDS. Since none of the available tests are particularly accurate, Dr. Fauci must have understood that his reliance on blood tests alone was likely to yield highly dubious results capable of dramatically overstating the spread of HIV. Well, that sounds familiar, and that's just one of several parallels to our current situation, right?
1: Yeah, when I Liz, I think I have two pages in the book that lists about 20 strategies that Dr. Fauci used that he developed during the AIDS crisis. And this includes, you know, abbreviating and aborting the clinical trials and making them very, very short, unblinding the studies and giving the drug to the placebo group to prevent any kind of... Uh, detection of long-term injuries, the use of fear, At the beginning of the AIDS crisis. Uh, Fauci did a New England Journal of Medicine article in which he said that AIDS was casually contagious and it could spread in the home. It could, It was going to spread and affect and kill millions and millions and millions of people. In fact, you know, AIDS really never left the gay community. And yet it it frightened people. And for a long time, it had this dramatic impact where, you know, kids with AIDS were not allowed to attend school. We passed a uh, federal policy that said people with AIDS were not allowed to enter the United States. And there was really a campaign against people with AIDS, that they were, you know, dangerous people, that... And the, uh, particularly the gay community suffered a long time because of that. They became this very, very isolated group that everybody else considered dangerous. And of course, there was no basis. People who actually were studying AIDS at that time were shocked about Fauci's statement. And then the use of, um, you know, the development of fake drugs that would uh, that would enrich uh, and highly toxic drugs that would develop. That would benefit the pharmaceutical industry, but really had no impact on AIDS. The suppression of functional off-patent therapies, you know, off-the-shelf repurposed drugs, and the silencing of doctors who there were doctors at that time, Greg, in the AIDS community who were in New York, particularly in San Francisco, who were specializing in treating AIDS on the front lines and who had developed all of these repurposed medications that worked very, very well against the symptoms of AIDS. And Dr. Fauci used policies to punish those doctors, to suppress the products, to make sure that they were not eligible for insurance. And if you ever see the movie Dallas Buyers Club, which won the Academy Awards, it originally Michelle Wallach, who wrote that movie originally, wrote it about Fauci. And Fauci was a big villain in that movie because he was the one who was suppressing these drugs that were working and forcing gay people to take a drug that that many of them quickly figured out was lethal. They developed the underground in San Francisco, New York, L.A., all over the country, and in Dallas, where people would go across the border and buy functional medications in Mexico and Europe and Canada, elsewhere, and bring them back and to distribute them to the gay community who did not want to take AZT. And, you know, Fauci was behind that. My uncle played a key role in Ending that system by developing what they call um, parallel track process where these kind of repurposed medications could receive quick FDA approval and be eligible for insurance uh, through these facilitated uh, clinical trials that were done by the AIDS doctors, frontline doctors. Uh, Unfortunately, nobody was able to do that. You know, by the time the COVID came around and Fauci was using those same methodologies to suppress ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, uh, monoclonal antibodies, uh, steroids, and all of these other drugs that we know are effective against AIDS. Um, By then, his power had become kind of absolute and nobody was questioning it anymore.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Man, it's just such an interesting and sad case study, really, with so many parallels to our current situation. People should definitely reflect on that. But I also wanted to ask you about another chapter in the book, probably the darkest one, called Dr. Fauci Mr. Hyde, NIAID's Barbaric and Illegal Experiments on Children. Well, this should be a wake-up call for people. What should they know about this chapter in Fauci's story?
1: Well, after he developed AZT, he was trying to develop new markets for it and for some other highly toxic chemotherapy drugs, uh, the big pharmaceutical companies. And so one of the ways they did, the first thing they did is they said, we're not just going to give this to AIDS patients, people who are showing symptoms of AIDS, but we're going to give it to everybody who tests positive for AZT. And we know and hundreds of thousands of people died who did not have AIDS and probably would not have ever developed AIDS, but who simply tested positive for AZT on a PCR test, which HIV, says, you mean, right? I mean, sorry, HIV, on a PCR test, which on the label of the PCR it says it's not good for diagnostic purposes. Oh, but nevertheless, those people were set were directed to AZT, which was guaranteed to kill them. It would kill 100 percent of the people who took it for a prolonged period of time. The you know, and there are people who survived AIDS and who have survived for decades who avoided AZT, and you know, um uh uh, there, there are many people who we know who are famous people who are in that category, and who use other treatments for AIDS that were not lethal. And, um, but he was developing new. So some of the new people that he targeted were were people who were HIV positive that did not have, have HIV, and then children. And in addition to children, mothers who had HIV to prevent maternal transmission to their children. And he, he tried, he was getting FDA approvals to, to use these highly, highly toxic drugs on kids and on pregnant women. And in order to do that, it's very, very difficult to get um, white children who will agree, parents who would agree to allow their children to take these highly toxic medications. So Fauci's solution was to get control of a series of foster homes. One of the the biggest was in New York City. It was Incarnation House, and the children in there were Black and Hispanic foster kids. And Fauci turned the pharmaceutical industry loose on those homes. And what they did to those children is beyond barbaric. Many of them died. We know at least 85 of them died. Many of those kids did not have HIV. In other words, there was no benefit, which makes the experiment illegal. If the child is not going to benefit, has no chance of benefiting, the experiments are illegal. The, the experiments, Fauci's experiments, were also illegal because he deliberately did not provide them guardians. The guardians would have put an end immediately to these experiments, and it's illegal to experiment on children who are foster kids unless they have a guardian. And what the and there was no medical per, trained medical personnel in these foster homes. The people who were running the homes were oftentimes on uh people with no medical training who were immigrants uh, and vulnerable themselves, mainly from the Dominican republic and they you know a part of the history of this was it came from the interviews with those people who realized what was happening that these kids were just guinea pigs and b b c did a wonderful documentary back in two thousand four called guinea pig children and the interviews with those children you know the filmed interviews are just the most heartbreaking things that you've ever seen they're kids who who are trying to resist the drugs they know the drugs are making them terribly sick that that they're killing them they try to resist the ones that resist are shipped up to columbia presbyterian hospital and they have feeding tubes installed in their bellies uh, where the uh, the drug companies can simply, when the kids are unwilling to swallow the pills, the drug companies can inject them into these feeding tubes. It's really horrific. And we know that at least 85 of those kids died. Um, Celia Farber, who was who Uh, who researched one of the chapters for me, that chapter of the book, who is a brilliant researcher and writer, went up to Hawthorne, New York, and found a cemetery called Gates of Heaven Cemetery where Fauci's victims, children, child victims were buried. Hmm. And she was able to find an open pit filled with hundreds of coffins. It was covered by an astroturf carpet, which he peeled back and saw these coffins, these little tiny coffins, piled haphazardly on top of each other. And there was a list of over a thousand kids who had mysteriously died on the side of that pit. We don't know how many of them came from Fauci's experiments. It's all a big mystery. We know that 85 of them, she was able to trace the the names of children in those pits to people who had died, kids who had died in his experiments. There was a series of investigations. Ultimately, Fauci is very, very powerful, and the investigations were dropped. Hmm. Um, But they made these devastating findings. And the findings were that these children died, that the experiments were illegal.
0: Yeah, oh my God, that is just incredible. And Gates and Fauci have both been very active in Africa, and that's something you talk about in the book, too. I think a lot of people here know that there's some experimentation that has gone on there, but I don't think they know the real scale or the details, and this is also pretty important for people to know, right?
1: Yeah, I have two chapters. One of them is called White Mischief, and the other one's called White Man's Burden. That looks at the two men and their experiments on African populations, and they're the same level of barbarism that we saw at Incarnation House in New York City. But mainly, they're directed at pregnant women. The African experiments, and again, there were many, many people who died. The experiments were uh, were the experiments were not designed. To look at safety, they were designed to get licenses for these companies and they did things in Africa that they would go to jail for in the United States. And they were abusive to these populations. They killed many of the people in their experiments. They, uh, their record keeping was haphazard and, uh, and completely incoherent. And the entire thing fell apart at one point and Fauci rushed around and ultimately used his very, very close relationship with President Bush to 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 exonerate the experiments, even though they, by that time all of the health agencies were horrified by what he had done and the records of that. Um, are very, very clear of that history. are very clear today, if you read my book, which is all very, very well referenced. Uh, Nevertheless, he was able to use his political clout to escape responsibility.
0: Mm. Yes, it's so dark and such suppressed history. People really should know about it. And the last chapter in your book is called Germ Games, and we know that they usually do telegraph their moves by running these pandemic simulations we know about event 201 we know about operation dark winter which was a simulation of a smallpox outbreak now we have bill gates making comments warning about a smallpox outbreak and we have this recent story of vials of smallpox found at the nih does this concern you are we inching closer to their next
1: big engineered scandal I don't know it is I mean I do uh, you know there there's a chapter that was left out of the book that I'm gonna include in the future editions and it's um I, I simply could not fit it between the two covers because of our rush to get this book to press, but it's on the gain of function and um it's on all of those experiments and how the pandemic evolves so um and and I talk in there about. The the soothsaying by these two men who, you know, were constantly projecting in this extraordinarily prescient way what was going to happen and predicting in some cases two years to the day that the pandemic would begin. But the the soothsaying began even earlier in 2000. They did a... uh, a pandemic simulation called uh, Dark Winter. And in that simulation, there is an anthrax attack. And it was it got so much publicity that uh, there was an orchestrated national concern with anthrax. And uh, the U.S. Senate had hearings on the vulnerability of the United States to anthrax attack and those hearings took place three weeks after 9/11, and during those hearings, there was an actual anthrax attack on the United States. It was initially blamed on Saddam Hussein, and was part of the portfolio of, you know, of frauds that, uh, that justified our war in Iraq. It later turned out, according to the FBI, that the anthrax did not come from Saddam Hussein, but came from one of the three U.S. military labs. And so then, you know, so but but the prescience of it when you read the book is truly amazing. Mm -hmm. And as you know... And most of your audience will know about Event 201. Event 201 was this pandemic simulation that occurred in New York City at the Pierre Hotel in October of 2019. So October of 2019, that's an important date. We now know, according to the National Security Agency's best estimates, the coronavirus 19 began circulating on september 12th and that you know that night the, the chinese military went into the lab and they replaced the lab director and they stripped away all of the or many of the uh, of the gain of function studies that were published on the website from all the public facing Pages of that website, they removed 22,000 samples of coronavirus, which have never been shown up again. Uh, Hospital parking lots filled up in Wuhan, and there were many other indicia that that was the day that the coronavirus began circulating. So a month later, we didn't hear about it until late December, early January. But a month after that happens, you have a simulation in New York City. A simulation of a global coronavirus pandemic. And the people who host that simulation are Bill Gates, Avril Haynes, who is the former deputy director of the CIA, and who is now the head of the National Security Council. So she's the top spy in America. She's the same person who covered up the Abu Ghraib and the CIA torture scandals and destroyed the tapes. And that her reward is to be now head, the chief spy in the country. And then the third person who is very odd, who is there, is George Gao, who is the head of the Chinese CDC and who almost certainly knew by that date that coronavirus was already circulating. And they have this coronavirus pandemic simulation and they have people there from the social media companies, from Johnson and Johnson, the biggest uh, pharmaceutical company in the world, um, from the public health agencies and from the mainstream media like Bloomberg and Washington Post. And they talk for a full day and none of the things they talk about are about public health. Instead, they're talking about clamping, using the pandemic as a justification and a pretense to clamp down totalitarian controls on Americans and on people across the planet and basically to to execute a coup d'etat against liberal democracy globally. So if you go, you can go and look at this today, Event 201, it's still up on YouTube and if you look at the fourth simulation, the fourth seminar of that day, which is the longest, the entire seminar practically concerns itself with how to silence people who say that this was a lab-generated coronavirus. And this is a, a discussion that George Gao, the, the Chinese CDC director. Is very aggressive about saying how do we stop people from talking about the fact that this, about the allegation that this is a lab-generated virus? So this is this is three four months before the vi- before anybody knows about the virus, and they're already talking about censorship and how to get the social media companies to to clamp down censorship and to not allow people to talk about this. And they talk about how to get Blacks to vaccinate because they say Blacks are going to be very reluctant to take this vaccine. And how do we convince them? How do we recruit civil rights leaders and sports leaders and religious leaders to convince the Black community to take this vaccine because they're going to be reluctant to take it? And all of these very prescient things going on. Well when I wrote the book, as you can see in that germ gains chapter, what I discovered is this was not a one-off event. They've been doing this since the Dark Winter event. In you know, actually they went back, they did one in 2019 in uh 20 uh 2019. So they've been doing this, or you know, in in nineteen ninety-nine was their first one. So but they've been doing these simulations. Once every two years or once every year. And they have involved hundreds of thousands of people. They've they've been clandestine. They've been secret. They've involved uh, healthcare frontline responders from across the country, across Europe and Canada. They would do them in all of these countries simultaneously. In Australia, they used... They had... Law enforcement officials, they, they brought in industry, oil companies, um, the big utilities, and all. And basically, they were teaching people each one of these simulations is not about how do you get vitamin D to the American people, how do you get zinc, how do you quarantine the sick, how do you coordinate doctors so we can find out the best repurposed medications and protocols. None of it. How do we tell people to lose weight and to take care and build their immune systems? There's none of that kind of discussion. It's all about how do you lock people down and force them to take mRNA vaccines from the beginning? We're talking about the mRNA vaccines from the beginning. Right. And what do they have in common? Many of them have celebrities who are leading them that give them the imprimatur of legitimacy, like Senator Sam Nunn, uh, Madeleine Albright, Senator uh, Gary Hart, Congressman Bill Gates, and many, many of them. And the, the, but the, the one constant is the constant presence of the CIA at all of them. And oftentimes three or four high-level CIA officials or affiliates... And it was CIA affiliated people who design and orchestrate and write the scripts for each of these pandemics. And and not and CIA, in case people don't know, is not a public health agency. The CIA does not do public health. It does coup d'etat. It has between 1947 and 19 In 2000, the CIA was involved in 73 coup d'etats, most of them against democratic governments. The CIA overthrows democracies. It does not do public health. So why are they doing these pandemic simulations year after year after year and training all of the public health officials in our country? This is what you do when there's a pandemic. You clamp down totalitarian controls, you create centralized government, you abolish the constitution, you get rid of due process, you put everybody under house arrest, you generate fear with propaganda, and you induce a condition that is known as Stockholm Syndrome, which makes the captors grateful to, or the captives, Grateful to their captors, and it, it inspires in them the belief that the only way to freedom and normalcy and survival is through total obedience and total compliance. And this is what they were practicing. And that at the end of every one of them is, you've got to take these Coars vaccines. And they anticipate. Resistance vaccination, which is odd because there's never been a pandemic in history where there was a functional cure or prophylaxis where people resisted it. So why are they thinking that people are going to resist vaccination? It doesn't make any sense. If there's something that clearly works, people will rush to get it in a pandemic if it's safe. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the problem is, uh, as you know, they have not been able to sell that story to the Americans or anybody else.
0: Right. Right. And, you know, gain of function is an interesting topic because I'm still trying to truly understand disease fully. Of course, nutrition, sanitation, and avoiding toxins is a lot of it, but I wonder, is it all of it? Because you also talk about the controversial aspect of all this, which is isolating viruses. Apparently, there are some credible claims that HIV had never been truly isolated. You said it was only found in half the men with AIDS symptoms. So, I mean, that doesn't seem like it would be necessarily the cause of anything. And that's with the fact that Nobel Prizes have been given out for isolating it or finding it. And a lot of people make a similar claim about COVID. If you read carefully, the papers always mention using computer modeling to fill in the gaps of the sequencing, which sounds a bit fishy. You also take germ theory to task a bit. Well, how did this become the dominant culture if germ theory might not even be accurate?
1: Uh, You know what? I'm very careful to not take a position on that debate because I really, I do not have the expertise or the knowledge or, you know, and I, I, expertise ultimately is a function of experience and I have not immersed myself enough into that very, very, those very, very complex questions to understand. To be able to make an independent assessment about who is right on that. I acknowledge there is a debate. I don't take, I'm very, very careful not to take a position on it. What I do is I show the debate in order to demonstrate Tony Fauci's reaction to that debate, which is to silence dissent, to, uh, to destroy the careers of scientists who question his orthodoxies, to pour money into, um, into the, a research that is uh, self-fortifying. In other words, people can make huge amounts of money by researching his theory, and you make no money. In fact, your career is destroyed if you try to research alternative theories. And I show how he used those exact same techniques beginning in that hiv uh, controversy but throughout his career and it's really was fascinating for me to learn that history as i wrote about it Mm -hmm. Um, but i don't make any pretense of being able to independently assess whether it's correct or not you know what i i think and you know i don't look into people's heads In this, I don't say this is why Tony Fauci behaves the way he does or why Bill Gates. I only record facts. There's 2,200 footnotes in this book. And every factual assertion I make is sourced and cited. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think people will find interesting is the origins of this gain of function research, which really started in 1972. We banned the the production and development and research on biological weapons. Uh, During the time of the anthrax attacks, the military began and the CIA had been illegally doing bioweapons development during the entire period. The military was very reluctant to do it, but there was a loophole in the original treaty that said, you can do bioweapons research as long as it's dual-use research. In other words, as long as you can make the claim that you're developing a vaccine. Because what you need to do to develop a bioweapon is virtually the same research that you need to do or that you that can be justified as vaccine development. So after 9-11, the military began pouring huge amounts of money into bioweapons development, but under the cover that it was vaccine research. The Pentagon, the CIA began independently funding Peter Daysack, and a lot of that funding went to doing this kind of research in the Wuhan lab. Military initially was reluctant to do it because they thought people will not believe that we're doing vaccine research in the Pentagon, so they started pouring their money into Tony Fauci. In 2001, after the anthrax attack, his budget for bioweapons research went from zero to about $1.6 billion a year. Mm. And interestingly, he was also given a raise. He was given a 68% raise based upon his management of bioweapons research. And that's why, and that raise, he's now the highest paid person in the federal government. The President of the United States earns $400,000 a year. Tony Fauci gets paid $434,000. But 70% of that of that salary is contingent upon him continuing his weapons research. Oh, when a bunch of his little bugs escaped in two thousand and fourteen, and three hundred scientists signed a petition to Obama, to asking Obama to shut down this crazy research by Tony Fauci and NIAID, which threatened to loose a pandemic superbug onto the world. He, they, you know, Obama passed the ban. Ouchi continued to illegally initially halted 18 studies, but then within a few months it was illegally restarted them, including the worst of those studies, which were Ralph Barrick studies at the University of North Carolina, and I'll tell you in a second why they were so bad. But he also began funding huge amounts of money to the Wuhan lab to work with these Chinese scientists who were affiliated with the military and they were very, very open that this was weapons research for them. You know, they were not even, they didn't even bother to conceal that this was, that their primary use was weapons. I show this in this, you know, this chapter in my book, which is about to be published and one of the things, one you know, Tony Fauci says, "Well, we were doing vaccine research, but, but here's the thing that shows that was a lie." Ralph Barrick in 2013 developed, with funding from Tony Fauci, developed a methodology called seamless ligation that allows scientists to engineer to take bad viruses, make them affect human beings by engineering a new spike protein that fits into the human lung, what they call the ACE2 receptor, which is a re- receptor in the human lung, and then to hide the human tampering. So if you were really doing vaccine research, you would want to do the opposite. You would want to show, you would want it forever clear and permanent and indelible that this was a human-created virus. Right, uh, there's no reason from a medical perspective to be to uh, to do this uh, what what Barrett calls it his nosium process. It makes it so that the human tampering becomes invisible then, and this is the real crime. Barrick went and taught that process to Xing Li Xi, the Chinese bat lady, the scientist who affiliated with the military who was doing this kind of study. At the Wuhan lab, and she learned how to do it. And it's almost certain that the coronavirus that we are dealing with today was engineered and then subjected to that seamless legation process that Tony Fauci funded.
0: Mm. Man, that is such good information. I know we're out of time. I'm going to just, I want to try to roll up these last few questions into one, and hopefully you can just give us a quick answer on it, because it involves the next phases of the COVID control plan. We didn't really talk about how damaging these vaccines for COVID might be. I'm quite worried about that. But in your very entertaining interview with Michael Cohen, you said vaccine passports are not being issued by health organizations. They're coming out of finance ministries. Well, that's interesting. And also, in conjunction with that, when it comes to 5G, I understand you just won a lawsuit against the FCC regarding 5G and damage to human DNA. Well, that's also really important. But these all relate to the current and next phase of the COVID control plan. How do these things come together? And what would you say people should know about them?
1: Okay, well, you... That, that is a one-hour question you just answered. But I, I know. I'm sorry. Essentially, what we're seeing is, you know, are all of these unprecedented mechanisms for control, for totalitarian control? And um, this, is, this is basically what we call turnkey totalitarianism. You put all of these mechanisms in place, They track and trace surveillance, the facial recognition that can even read now that, you know, the Chinese have a facial recognition system they've already deployed that can read guilt on human faces. The digitalization of the currency and vaccine passports, and you put all of those together, and they are mechanisms for total control. The aspiration of every totalitarian government in history has been complete control of human thought and human behavior. And because of technology and vaccine passports they now have those things so once you know once you have a vaccine passport there's no longer any such thing as rights there are simply privileges that you can qualify for as long as you're compliant and they can take those things away from you so if you have a vaccine passport you know that has a, a social credit system attached and is attached to your digitalized currency and the government even has the power there's now one of the things they've got is programmable currency so that if the government tells you for example uh, you didn't get vaccinated therefore you need you cannot leave your home the government can actually fix your passport and your bank account so your money will only work at the local grocery store And will not work anywhere else. If you are, you know, I said and told the people in Italy, programmable currency means that they can order you to stay in Bologna and make it so that your money will not work in Milan. And they can control you absolutely. And they can say to you, unless you do what you are told, you cannot travel, you cannot participate in sports, you cannot talk on the phone, you can't do anything. And, you know, there's no time in history that government has had a power that it has not abused. So this is 100% guaranteed that these powers will be abused and that we are headed for a very, very dark epoch of civilization if we allow them to get away with this. People need to be educated, need to understand what the stakes are here and what they are up to in that You know, the use of the manipulation of fear through propaganda is a mechanism, a device for shutting down the human capacity for critical thought Mm -hmm. and to get people to run to an authoritative figure for protection. And they're manipulating that expertly in order to get us to give away all of our rights.
0: Yes, yes. Well said. I definitely thought it was important to fit that in. And this has all been really informative. I hope we can turn the perception on these narratives and stop these policies, but it just seems so overwhelming because so many people endorse this shit. Of course, the early success of your book is a really good sign, so fingers crossed. But it's been a huge pleasure. I definitely feel aligned with the right people, and I'm lucky to be able to play a small role in all this and have some of your time. Thanks for doing it, and thank you for your courage.
1: Thank you, Greg. I will point out that the book has now been number one for almost ten days, which is pretty unprecedented. And you know what's amazing about it, and what I'm so grateful about, is that it's been there's been a wall-to-wall complete blackout. There has not been a single review of the book in any newspaper in our country. I'm blocked from going on TV, with you know one or two exceptions, with Tucker Carlson, really. We're not allowed to do promos of the book. The New York Times, you know, the, the the big companies like Barnes and Noble are refusing to promote the book, refusing to put it in their front windows, even though it's number one on the list. And that usually is what, you know, the metric they use. So there's all these, the, the, the New York Times, even though we sold 120,000 books in a week, uh, Will Smith, sold 86,000 the same week. They put his book number one and my book number seven. Hmm. Even though we, we outsold everybody on that list. And so they're using all these mechanisms to suppress the book. But nevertheless, people are buying it. It's really a miracle. It, it is mouth to mouth. People are are buying it as an act of defiance, an act of resistance. And I am really grateful to the public for just stepping forward. So thank you. And I, Greg, as you know, I don't make any money from the book. It all goes to children's health events to do our litigation, to educate the public, to fight the bad guys and to stand up against the bullying and the totalitarianism. So thank you for your help.
0: You got it. And thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. And boom goes the dynamite. What a good interview. I wish we only had more time. We are really lucky to have him tackling such a controversial subject, and I have a lot of respect for him because he's not just coasting on the name recognition, as he easily could. But he's also got one of the best books that covers the pandemic and the nefarious track records of those involved with it. It's very professionally done, and it's basically like a textbook for how we win. Not to get too esoteric with it, but I also think a lot about the universe giving us what we need or providing the right person for the job, and there's an added layer in him being a lifelong Democrat with one of the most recognizable and beloved Democratic family names in American history. Because the way this information has been politicized, for it to break the spell, it kind of has to come from someone with this particular resume, someone from the left. So the typical right-winger, Trump-faithful dismissals won't work. And that's important. What he said about the book's early success is great. It gives me hope that the tide is turning a little bit and we're not the minority we're made to feel like we are. As he said, the media blackout can make it seem like everyone shares the one true opinion when they don't. And the long list of doctors that Mr. Kennedy has at the beginning of the book is proof of that as is the fact that this podcast that often tackles the most controversial and out-there subject matter ranks in the top 0.05% of podcasts, according to ListenNotes.com. And it's not to toot the THC horn, it's just surprising to me, because I say we're fringe, I say we're a counterculture, but are we? This community of free thinkers is bigger than we know, I guess. There's just... Very little acknowledgement of it in the mainstream, so it is tough to gauge. But one thing that would help me keep the show at a high level is please contact Children's Health Defense and tell them you came from THC. I don't care about retweets or smashing any like buttons. I never really have. I care about this audience reaching out to our high-level guests and their organizations and making it known that a THC interview has an impact because that allows me to make better shows for you, which is really all I want to do. I'm a simple man, guys. I know I mentioned a Michael Cohen interview a couple of times, and that's because Mr. Kennedy was on Cohen's podcast a few weeks ago. You know I seek out previous interviews to get ready for my own, so I listened to that one, and my god, if you like contentious interviews, go listen to it. Michael Cohen even front-loads it with over ten minutes of caveats and shitty comments like, well, you decide if he's right or a batshit crazy conspiracy nut. And it's like, well, I wonder how you feel, Mike. But it's fun to hear argumentative interviews every once in a while. The world used to really enjoy debate, and now we never get it, and this is a subject that definitely should be debated. And when one person knows almost nothing, and the other person has done the work that Mr. Kennedy has done, It's good medicine. And Michael Cohen also always finds a way to bring almost every question back to his own drama. So you get a healthy dose of cringe in there as well. But Mr. Kennedy does get to talk more about 5G in that interview. He said something to the effect that 5G is not there to help you download a movie in two minutes instead of four. It's machine-to-machine data collecting and analyzing infrastructure. It's a digital control system Meant to control your every move and coordinate that with your smart devices, your biometrics, your vaccine compliance, your online activity, and your finances. And that's not new around here. We've done a lot of interviews on that subject, but it was refreshing to hear him say it, because not everyone will go there. And I wanted to get at least a portion of that in our interview as well. And note that his group did sue the FCC for saying 5G doesn't harm human DNA, and they won. So that makes a difference. The other big question I wanted to end with that I just couldn't squeeze in is how do we actually win? So we have the information, sure, but the narrative is so aggressive and the coordinated interlocking aspects of this big machine are so monolithic, how do we beat it? But a big part of the answer is spreading the knowledge, interviews like this, books like his, making room in our budget for donations to Children's Health Defense. It's all important, and the book lays out the case for Fauci's crimes, but who's going to prosecute? Where is the justice? We have not only a media blackout, but a legal stonewall as well. I wish I could have heard his tactical advice for mobilizing this not-so-small alternative community, but maybe next time. It was also important to me to make sure that we pointed out that he does bring up terrain theory or miasma theory in the book and questions this germ theory dominance. He's careful not to commit, but I'm right there with him that it's very suspicious how aggressive one side is about attacking the other and how much money can be made in one paradigm versus the other. But I thought we'd get a quicker answer there and I could squeeze in those last few questions I had in mind. But it just goes to show how short an hour long interview really is and why you should all be plus members. Because as you know, 99% of the interviews I do are two hours long meaty, robust, and thorough as hell. I don't know that it was really driven home as much today, but Forrest Moretti said in our show a few weeks back that mortality from infectious disease was way down before vaccination was introduced. He shows the data, shows the chart, And carry that on through to the 1980s, and mortality rates for infectious disease were clearly so low for so long that the Reagan administration was going to close the CDC and the NIAIH. And like you'll find in about half the scandals in history that we cover around here, in the interest of self-preservation and the morally bankrupt quest for extreme profits, they said, we need to find something quick to justify our existence. Which over time turned into, wow, we found something that works. Why only do it one time? Almost nobody is qualified to truly understand or question what we're doing here. We own all the experts and we've mafiatized the industry. Who wants to stop the money train from rolling in? And again, like the other half of scandals we cover around here, fighting a never-ending battle against an invisible enemy and using fear to get government to throw billions of dollars at it was front and center. So the question I would ask to the Western medicine faithful is if the diseases we vaccinate against had declined by over 90% before vaccination was introduced, which is true for measles, scarlet fever, whooping cough, diphtheria, and smallpox, and curiously, there was never a scarlet fever vaccine anyway, but it went down with all the rest of them, Because of the better understanding, when it comes to industrial chemical exposure, heavy metal exposure, increased nutrition and sanitation, and in the decades that came after widespread vaccination campaigns, we have an explosion of cancers, autoimmune disease, and neurological conditions. Why is that? A very roundabout and lengthy, verbose way to get to a question there, but that would be my question. If all that information is true... How do you make the case that vaccines are the holy grail of this whole medical system? The big machine will tell you all these conditions and vaccines are unrelated, but then ask the system where these things have come from and why they've exploded, and they don't even have a good answer. They'll just tell you it's a roll of the genetic dice, and that's not even an answer, really. It's a placeholder for truly looking in the mirror. And if you're still not willing to examine the harsh products of big pharma, including chiefly among them, the ones they inject, then I'd ask why they have set up legal liability protections in advance. In the case of childhood vaccines and COVID shots, what does that signal to you? Why did they fight so hard to establish a special court system that the media refuses to cover that has paid out millions of dollars to vaccine-injured children, and yes, autism victims, as a result of those shots? What does that tell you? Well, this is the paradigm that I subscribe to, and I think I'm in good company. And as for me, well, I'm sure this is the kind of episode that might be a lot of people's introduction to the Higher Side Chats, and that's great. As I mentioned earlier, usually our interviews are two hours long. I do five a month, and the first hour is free, and the second hour is for an $8 a month subscription. We have 10 years of shows in the Archive, Sometimes we're talking about vaccine efficacy. Sometimes we're talking about the hollow earth and the Saturnian death cult. But the common thread is that these subjects are all pretty radical and the majority of people would dismiss them. Although just like today, whatever the topic, I try to craft information-rich interviews with guests who really know their material and can make a good case for something you maybe didn't think you'd consider to have any merit. It's fun to hear a good case made for an out there or against the grain position. And that's what we do. So no ads and the plus subscription means that I don't ask for anything else and I don't ask for anything without giving you something back. It's reciprocal and it works for us. A lot of the time when I do something outside of that two-hour format like today, it could easily just be a plus member exclusive. A lot of podcasters do that because, well, we're all trying to sweeten the pot, and it's nice to give an additional bonus to the people who do open up their wallets. But this subject is really just too important. We got a lot of propaganda to try to break through. I want this to be easily shareable. Maybe as a tip of the hat, you do sign up for a month or two. You will certainly find things that you like in that big old archive at thehiresidechats.com. But... Ideally, if you can only do one thing right now, just donate that $8 or whatever you can to Children's Health Defense. Because I'm doing alright, and having the House of COVID cards topple and Fauci's medical mafia dismantled, and having all this shit be over for 2022, would be the best gift of all. Wouldn't it though? So thanks for listening. Thanks to Mr. Kennedy for taking the time and doing what he does. We will overcome. That's it for this one. I've done my part. Your move, medical mafia members, big pharma freaks, and turnkey totalitarianists. Your fucking move.
2: Oh no, you see, the world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings. Control over everything The 9 to 5 is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings From some spying agency Wish we were younger and free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed the vast conspiracy. we see. There's such a difference between us and the dam. It's doubling your time.